This is season one of Betting On It, an eight episode series where we follow one betting industry startup on its journey to raise seed capital. Betting On It is brought to you by GeoComply, who provides fraud prevention and cybersecurity solutions that detect location fraud and help verify a user's true digital identity. Trusted by leading brands and regulators for the past 10 years, their geolocation solutions are installed on over 400 million devices and analyze over a billion transactions every month. To learn more, visit www.geocomply.com. All right, we are back with episode four in season one of Betting On It. And I'd like to start by thanking everyone for the positive feedback on the series so far, which if you listen to episode one, you'll know that I heavily disclaimed this was all a big experiment, but so far I'm feeling pretty encouraged by the results as we near the halfway mark of this season. For this episode, we're going to take a bit of a turn and talk a little less about the tactical nuts and bolts of building a company and instead focus on the more human aspect of what it means to start and build a business. To help lend some insight and perspective to this topic, we welcome back a previous guest of the podcast, Colin Davey from Betscope, which is doing some really cool stuff, which I'll let Colin speak to in a moment. But just to set this up, a little background on how this particular episode came together. I met both Best Booster and Betscope around the same time last fall and was fairly quickly convinced that both of you guys should meet. So I set up an introduction and beyond any potential synergy between your respective companies, I thought the most interesting thing to come from the intro, at least to me, was how you guys connected on different aspects of the entrepreneurial grind. So made it a no-brainer to have you on this episode to go a bit deeper on the topic. Uh, but before we get into that, Colm, welcome back to the podcast. It's been around six months since we had you on as a guest. So maybe we can start with a quick check-in and update on how everything's going at Betscope. You know, I just love the arc narratively about how from some further context, Jesse and I met when he was in the audience at the GDE Innovation Challenge, which I ended up winning. And, you know, you're so focused on impressing the judges and looking at all the benefits that come from there. You never stop to think that maybe there's someone in the audience who is just as equally, if not more valuable than the judges actually judging the competition. So it is just a reminder of the only way to win is to not take your shot. Because you never know what comes, uh, you know, downstream from there. So really love how this has all come together. Thanks for having me on again, as usual. I think since the last time we spoke, it's uh, things at Bedscope are pretty good. Uh, we finished out building a lot of our core infrastructure for all of the sports that we've wanted to support. We've been able to spin off new features based off of some observed user behavior and spinning up some ancillary products that kind of meet them where they are instead of some of our original hypotheses. And we're really excited to spin up some even more new services and offerings that will allow us to integrate into a lot of other products and components in the ecosystem. So I think it's been a great journey for lessons learned and slowly but surely getting traction in all of the right areas. Awesome, Colin. Thanks for the update. On the Bets Booster side, we've actually given Sahil the day off, but he'll return for next week's episode. So for today, we have Drew here to chat with Colin. And for this one, I'll take a bit more of an active role than I did for the last couple episodes in this series. And I'll ask a few questions that I hope both you guys can answer and speak to, and we'll sort of let the discussion flow freely from there. Does that all sound okay by both of you guys? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. Well, let's just get right into it then. To warm us up, to get started, you know, they say that being an entrepreneur isn't a financial decision. I actually just quickly relayed an anecdote to somebody in a, a call earlier today where I, I sort of relayed the anecdote that entrepreneurs are the only people that are willing to work 80 hours a week in order to avoid working 40 hours a week, right? Which is to say like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, you work twice as much to avoid getting a real job, right? So 
being an entrepreneur isn't always a financial decision, right? The money doesn't necessarily come easily. Uh, it can be framed as more of an existential decision in many ways. So curious to hear from both of you guys what internally motivated you both to take the leap from, in both your cases, what were very sort of safe, um, lucrative, comfortable jobs in sort of corporate environments and, and, and take that leap into entrepreneurship. Like what was that internal motivation for each of you guys? And maybe we can start with you. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, give you a blunt answer without sugarcoating it. And that's kind of my whole life. Uh, just having other people try to tell me what to do is just pissed me off. So like, uh, being an entrepreneur is kind of the career solution to that. And then specifically, uh, I mentioned on a previous podcast episode, I read anti-fragile and that just kind of, that was really the trigger that set me off on this path. And right at the end of the book, after you get through it, he basically says, uh, call to action, like go be an entrepreneur. Like if you understand what I wrote here, most people don't, you'll be fine. Just go do it. And so kind of for me, that that's what led into the journey. Just I'd also add on that, uh, you know, I, you say that those jobs are nice and safe and lucrative in the corporate environment. I don't know how much the last six months have ever mm. really like, uh, I, I don't know the last six months of degree or the degree of safety implied. Fair. I think one of the, uh, at least the people of my generation have internalized is there's just a base level of precarity on anything. And once you accept that there is no such thing as a safe job, fundamentally, the only lesson I've taken away from all of that, I think I've actually like lost my job like four or five times or something like that through no fault of my own. Once you accept the fact that as long as you are working for someone else, you are fundamentally subject to the whims of things outside of your control. The only lesson I have internalized from that is like, if you want true security, no one's going to give it to you. You have to go build it yourself. And so if you are looking for that, paradoxically, you got to go make something yourself. And to answer your question, why did I eventually take the leap? I think there's a lot of, you know, people can agree with that philosophically, but they fundamentally don't have, they don't know what they want to say in the world of entrepreneurship. They are, they are lacking for the idea or the thing to attach themselves to. You have some people that sign on as employee number four or five and kind of live their entrepreneurship that way. But I don't want to undersell how hard it is to have an idea of your own. There were years where I was clamoring for the same thing. I really want to do my own thing, but I don't have the idea to propel it forward. And so what caused me to take the leap is finally epiphany of my background in sports analytics and sports betting, you know, reading some things, looking for some tools out there that executed that were, you know, could execute on some powerful concepts and truly seeing that there is none. And it's kind of a slow realization of if I want this, if I want to see this thing like in the world, it literally has to be me to build it. And that always sounds insane when you're an entrepreneur and you think only I can come up with this thing or only I can execute on it well, but that is literally the game. Like everyone you'll have on here that's on Entrepreneur and even on the Betting Startup podcast probably has that same belief at a core level. So it's that fine line between it's crazy, but it's also not crazy. Yeah, seconded. Like that that's the mentality you got to have if you're going to take something from zero to one. It's like if you try to depend too much on other people to go from zero to one, like it's going to fall apart. You just got to, you know, roll up your sleeves and do it at some point. <laughs> Yeah, 100%, guys. Curious as well, like, I guess, as you think about that leap from, uh, I guess I will call them comfortable corporate jobs, but corporate jobs, you know, obviously taking a leap like that comes with certain sacrifices uh, when you talk about starting a company. And, you know, the obvious one is maybe from sort of a, a monetary perspective or a financial perspective, right? You forego what could be often, you know, fat salaries with lucrative bonuses, all that good stuff for a lot of uncertainty um, and a lot of, you know, headache and heartache and, and, and all of uh, the risk, right? Least of which, 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 at least in my opinion, doesn't get talked about nearly enough is like beyond the financial sacrifice of starting a company, right? 
the all-encompassing nature of, of what it means to go both feet into this thing can have cascading effects in other areas of your life, whether that be personal relationships, home life, you know, talking about work-life balance, which is something that often goes by the wayside when you jump into starting a company. So like, I guess just to hear again from both of you guys, when you think about sacrifices in starting each of your companies, what are some of the ones that you think about that have really, uh, I guess, been somewhat acute? Um, Drew, maybe we can start with you on that one. Yeah, sure thing. I think the financial ones weren't as significant to me as the social ones. Like I still remember the first Friday where I was like, you know, I'm not going to go hang out tonight. I'm not going out to the bar. I'm going to stay inside and work. And that's just lunacy to most people. Right. And so I remember that, but like, you can't just invent more time out of thin air, right? Like if you're going to spend, say, two nights a week or a night and a weekend or something working on it at the very beginning, that's a night and a weekend. You're not going to be doing whatever else you were doing before you started working on it. And so losing that like two days of socializing has been you know, rough on my end. And like I'm looking forward to kind of rebuilding that work-life balance post-funding. It's like and that's not something I, I really want to get stuck in long-term of working the like 60 or 80 hours. Like you got to kind of bottleneck that to maybe like two years at a time or something. And then for the financial side of things, uh, I'm just kind of a weirdo. I like minimalism and aestheticism. So that was, you know, something I actually looked forward to of like, let me get rid of all of my possessions and like live as frugally as I can. And then I think once you actually experience that and you see like I can get by on, you know, one or $2,000 a month or whatever it is, then the, the nest egg that you piled up from a corporate job goes a lot farther. And it's like, oh, okay, I don't have to, you know, this doesn't have to work in six months or a year. Like I got a little while and it's kind of calming in that sense for me anyway. I remember when Drew and I had a conversation a while back because we are in remarkably similar circumstances across a lot of our axes and our, at our points in our lives. I actually just moved back uh, from San Francisco to Chicago. And I remember reeling an anecdote of, well, everything I own can fit in two suitcases. And that is kind of a heat check at a certain point. You know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, my God, I don't have the house. I don't have the picket fence. I don't have all of these trappings. But the flip side of that is you can pick up your life. And once that I came to a similar realization, like, what do you really need? And like, once you realize you don't need a whole lot and you can run an entire business out of a tiny laptop and a backpack, what do you really need? Everything else is keeping up with the Joneses and is not material to running a business. So like I, I have, that's a reason I think Drew and I have uh, connected a lot. We're just kind of cut from the same cloth. Uh, to answer your original question, I know that like just the working nonstop thing comes across as a sacrifice, but I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit. I think Drew and I are both in the spot where this fundamentally doesn't feel like work. And so that part doesn't feel like a sacrifice actually. So I don't mind that part as much. For me, it's kind of an inversion of what you said, actually. My sacrifice was actually kind of trying to have it both ways, where Bedscope originally started as a side project while I was full-time employed. And I look at that as the sacrifice, where I'm sure that we would be ahead on every metric that I would want to be on had I gone full bore and just done it full-time a year ago. That's a personal preference question. It's roughly a function of risk tolerance. Looking back, I don't know that I would have changed a thing, to be honest, because like Drew said, you have that nest egg built up. And so you have a little bit longer runway for your own personal experience. Had I gone out and raised a bunch of money and made all the mistakes that I did, they would have been a lot more costly than the lessons I was able to learn while keeping this as a bootstrap side project. And so, yes, it can be frustrating now looking at competitors, looking at your peers, looking at where everyone else is in their stage and wishing you were as far along as they were. But 
you got to remember it was a conscious choice you made to not go, you know, a hundred percent and kind of treat it as a side project. And that's okay. Because if you look at it, if you're comparing yourself to your grass is greener, ideal situation, I could have been here. There's a 99.9% chance that you're comparing your ideal situation to it. Not, it would not have gone that way. And so anytime you measure yourself short of perfect, you're always going to be disappointed. So it still is a little bit of a sacrifice, you know, like choosing to tamp down some progress at the expense of keeping a roof over your head. But I don't regret it in terms of the path that I chose. Yeah, I'll add a little bit to that. Well, agree completely. I did the first year of Bet's Booster also with a full-time corporate job and just did it on the side. And like the, the thing that stands out to me in hindsight is like you don't just switch, you know, flip the switch and then go from 100% this direction to 100% that direction. Like it's, or I found it was better to kind of gradually do it and kind of grow into it before I was ready to be like, okay, yeah, I really need to be working on this full-time. Like my time is the bottleneck and like the, the side project has worked well enough that I can justify going full-time and getting rid of the salary. Yeah. And uh, another just thing to add to the frustration part, you know, Drew, I'm sure you have the same thing where you look at other companies and, oh my God, they're so much far ahead and all that stuff. I think one of the things that I know gets mentioned at other places is you're by definition comparing yourself to a survivorship bias, where if you only look at the places and the companies that made it, we don't need to say on a podcast called, you know, it's called betting on it and the betting startups about what the survival rate is of companies here. And so if you're benchmarking yourself against only the places that made it, it is hard to mentally price in. There's nine other companies that didn't. And like it is a fool's errand to compare yourself to only the ones that made it because you're not pricing in the the actuarial table correctly. So that's always an ongoing battle. I'm sure that it's not unique to betting startups, that it's just entrepreneurship in general. But, you know, that is uh, that is why it is so helpful to connect with companies kind of in your similar life cycle or people who are slightly ahead of you that will lend a helping hand and say that I've been there and they know where you're going through. Like, it's just as much of a support group as it is, you know, an opportunity for revenue streams. Yeah, lots of good stuff in there, guys. I want to quickly just come back to something Drew said, uh, just around like for you personally, Drew, like you talked about sort of identifying as like a minimalist, which is interesting, right? Because I think, again, talking about sacrifices people make to enter the the arena of entrepreneurship, right? Again, oftentimes it does require people to step away from, you know, the the, the comforts of a high salary, right? That leap is is difficult for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people you know, sort of fall, I don't say victim to, but lifestyle creep is a real thing, right? As people start to earn high salaries, their lifestyle starts to, you know, scale accordingly with that salary. Suddenly without that salary, you can't sustain or maintain that lifestyle that you've created for yourself. And it's very difficult for people once they've reached that level of sort of comfort to, to go backwards, right? So I think, you know, in your particular case for you, sort of with this, you know, mindset of minimalism, I can't help but think really lends itself nicely to starting a startup, if nothing else, only for the reason that, you know, you're comfortable inherently operating very leanly, right, in your own personal life, which in theory should extend to operating your startup in a very lean way, you know, allocating your resources very smartly only to those things that are going to give you the maximum return or have the maximum impact. Curious if you can just quickly elaborate before we move on here, just on how you sort of think about, I guess, yeah, like how minimalism in your personal life has sort of set you up for potential success on your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the thing that jumps out at me there is that uh, you mentioned like people don't like to go backwards. Like that is so true. You know, look around, you know, look around in a keeping up with the Joneses sense. Nobody voluntarily takes a step backwards except for entrepreneurs, right? 
But that doesn't mean if you're looking forward, debating about whether to make this decision for yourself, like, okay, well, you take one step back to potentially take five steps forward. Like, I like that better than a, you know, straight line one for one. So it's it's worth the risk at some level. And then as for the, your actual question, in general, I would say there's a quote I like. I'm trying to remember it. I don't remember who said it, but it's focus on as little as necessary, not as much as possible. And I think if you really embody that and look at a lot of things, it's like you want to try a lot of things as an entrepreneur, but you also want to get rid of the things that don't work really aggressively, right? So in the past two years for us, that's been a lot of the attempts we've made at marketing. It's like you try it and it's like, okay, this is taking so much money. Is it producing results? No, get rid of the entire thing, right? Try again from scratch. And so like having that willingness to go completely back down to zero and just start over again was something that's like fundamentally flawed, I think is probably the most valuable thing I would recommend. Like don't, don't be afraid to just scrap something and start over again. Um, I've got plenty of editorializing on not wanting to go back. I think there are going to be, especially in our field, a lot of people that will have no choice to go back due to, uh, I don't know, you raise interest rates 4% and all of a sudden the business geniuses of the last decade found that they fundamentally have no ideas. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of that. And part of, I think, what the way that Drew have always structured, Drew and I have always structured our companies or kind of our mentality is, yeah, this thing has to be profitable as soon as possible. And I think it is shocking to me how much we've endured a decade of just user number grow up. It doesn't matter if your business model is fundamentally unsound as long as money is essentially free through low interest rates. I think there's not only a lot of people who don't want to go back down, but have kind of acclimated to the thing that they've been optimizing for doesn't really work in an environment where you have to make more money than you spend. Personally, I've always approached the world that way. And so it's been maddening on some level to kind of live in this decade of just seeing, frankly, so many bad ideas flourish and get insanely high valuations when I look at this. And I'm like, how will this will ever work? Pick your favorite example of the past decade. I don't know. We could sit here and power rank who is number one for what it's worth. Mine is probably Adam Newman and we work all time bag secure, like Hall of Fame, like Godspeed you, man, you did the thing. But I think that, yes, like not only that willingness to go back, but almost the assumption of like, you know, the world is a lot of people, especially in tech, necessarily knew it is now not that way. I was thinking that world was insane the whole time. And so it's kind of like, I almost feel like the weird mutant that has grown up in the radioactive wasteland where I'm already acclimated <laughs> to this environment. And I'm like, great, now you're all on my level. And I think this is how it should have been the whole time. So I kind of welcome that mentality because uh, we're kind of forged in that crucible. Yeah, actually, we'll shit on Uber. You can edit it out if you want. So like Uber came out in 20, whenever it was, 13, 2014, and it was like half the price of a taxi. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like you, you added a mobile app. You didn't change the fundamental economics of driving a car. Like, how is this half the price of a taxi? It's like, oh, VCs are subsidizing it. Like, that doesn't seem like a good long-term strategy. I yep. bet that's going to blow up at some point. Yep. All we got to show for it was a lost decade of public transit investment. Sounds like a win for everyone. Well, like you say, Colin, with the, uh, you know, the rapid increase in interest rates, it's obviously having some cascading effects. And I guess for me, I like to look at uh, Warren Buffett for guidance on this, who said that something to the effect of you only find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. I think we all agree the tide has gone out and continues to go out. So uh, quite a revealing time right now uh, with a lot of early stage companies that have been benefiting from, you know, the low interest rate phenomenon of the last 10 years and are now having to very quickly adapt to, to reality here. Yep. I, uh, I welcome the challenge.
Right on. Let's move along here, guys, and talk a little bit about your products from a user perspective. So, uh, you know, in talking with both of you over the last number of months, I, I know that both of you consider yourselves to be sort of user number one for your respective products, right? I mean, as the conventional wisdom goes, you know, all founders of all startups should be user number one of their own products. I know for both of you guys that holds true. Uh, I'm just curious, how does this mindset affect your thinking and decision making around your products? And just sort of how are you thinking about that um, from, uh, I guess, a growth perspective? Um, from a growth perspective, it comes with its own challenges. I mean, I think one of the things we didn't really allude to, or maybe we did in passing on why you choose to be an entrepreneur, fundamentally, we built BebScope because we wanted to build a product that we ourselves would want to use. And we decided whatever that is worth, that is worth. And there's plenty of other great discoveries and products and concepts that come out of it that we know we can monetize. But at the end of the day, this is not worth getting out of bed for and enduring this amount of stress and heartburn and wanting to quit maybe 12 times a day just for how hard it is if you're not genuinely excited about your own product. Um, I think a lot of people have kind of fallen into the trap, you know, speaking to the last 10 years of building something they think someone else will want to buy. And that is in that environment, that's a viable business strategy if you want to take that lottery ticket to give it a shot. For me, I just have heard so many and know so many horror stories around, especially when you take outside money that needs to hit a certain multiple. You are at that point grinding away for someone else's dream and something you don't actually believe in. I have been through that feeling in many jobs before, and it is the fastest case to burn out, the fastest case to just wanting to quit on everything. And like that's when the second order and third order effects on your all of your life outside of your job really hit. So it is a requirement for me to keep chugging away at this thing because I know what I would want built for myself. Now, in my particular case, it's not necessarily a mass market product. And, you know, I think all three of us have talked about that as it relates to Betsco. So that does come with its own challenges of great. What you want to use is not necessarily going to apply to every better out there. And so the challenge becomes, how do you meet them in the middle? How do you retain the core concepts? And can you just accept probably a slower rate of growth rather than something that might take off and has some virality, but at the end of the day, like you're not intellectually confident or honest that it actually works or that you're doing the right thing, or this is something that you would use. So yes, there's trade-offs on both sides. Yes, it'll be always great if I designed something super simple that maybe looked like it worked, but didn't actually, but it got a bunch of users to sign up and line goes up. It would just feel hollow to me. And like, I think one of the biggest killers of this, and I'm sure we could talk about it at length too, is the whole imposter syndrome thing. And am I doing this right? That's something you got to suppress as an entrepreneur. All my inklings of self-doubt and it is a work in progress. And a big part of that for me, and this might not be the case for other people, is going to sleep at night knowing that I'm building that something works. And unless you have that rock solid foundation, like everything else is second to that. So it's a trade-off that I make knowingly for how I specifically approach entrepreneurship. Yeah, I'll build on that. And the, the biggest thing or the biggest advantage, I would say, to being the first customer of your own product is you can eliminate so much overhead for like customer feedback, right? And uh, there's a metaphor of like wearing different hats. So like if I'm this, you know, looking at a design or thinking about what to build, I'll put on my Bets Booster hat and be like, huh, do people want this? I'll take off that hat, put on my Drew the customer hat. Uh, yes, I do want that. Okay. Do I think this is something that other people would also want? I'm like, okay. Yeah, probably. 
and the you know, bets booster at a fundamental level was like, you use your phone, you win a whole bunch of money in as little time as possible. So like the two levers you have are, can it be done faster or can you make more money? And then if you convert that to a dollars per hour thing, it's like, you know, maybe for a sign up bonus, you can work at $400 an hour. Is that something I want? Do I want to be able to work for $400 an hour on demand? Yes. All right. Well, what if it took 30 minutes instead of one hour? Do I want to be able to work for $800 an hour on demand? Like, yes. Do I think other people want to be able to work for $800 an hour on demand? Yes. Right. And so you can just like go through those mental reps without having to be like, I'm going to take two weeks and build out this feature and then take two weeks and show it to people. And then, you know, a month has gone by and I'm just returning with that first cycle of feedback. You can just do mental reps so much quicker if you actually know what you want and are building it with yourself as a customer. You know, for this season of betting on it, we're focused on Bets Booster, and Bets Booster obviously, as part of this season, is on a fundraising journey. This season will culminate with a pitch to three industry investors, and that will sort of commence the start of Bets Booster's seed funding round. So, through I guess the lens of raising money at the stage that Best Booster is at, and calling for Betscope, I, at least to my understanding, you're not sort of actively raising right now, but I would, you know, broadly, and you know, correct me if you disagree, but I would broadly sort of categorize you as being sort of at a similar stage as Bets Booster. So I'll sort of lump you guys in together. I guess just at this stage and when talking about raising money from investors, obviously by definition, you're very early. There's not a lot of quantifiable data to support an investment decision. So it's often said that investors at this stage are betting on the jockey more than they are the horse. And for each of you guys individually, I mean, you both have a very heavy background in math and, and each of you has some very rare high level achievements that you've accomplished in life. So, you know, I guess as you think about this, this notion of betting on the jockey instead of the horse, how much self-confidence do each of you have in yourselves as metaphorical jockeys in this context? And Colin, maybe we can start with you on this one. I think it's a really interesting topic because confidence being the operative word on that can come from a lot of different places. And I don't think it's the same for everyone. I'll answer and say, like, I'm supremely confident that this is going to work, but there's a bunch of different ways to get to confidence. So you mentioned all of our different high level achievements, but, you know, sometimes I think it can actually be a misnomer because for, cer for certain people, your resume and your achievements don't necessarily give you the internal feedback. Like, take mine. I'm still mad that I only won one Jeopardy episode instead of seven or something like that. And so there can always be an internal voice that says, like, no, this is a fluke. Ah, this isn't real. Anything, no nothing's like that. And yet you need the confidence to continue forward. I think for a lot of investors, you know, their preference, and you see this with so much pattern matching, is just go bet a twenty, bet on a twenty-three-year-old who's like too dumb to know any better and is going to bull charge ahead that doesn't know how hard it is. And I get it why a lot of people throw money at those horses because they're just going to persevere and work a hundred-hour weeks and like grind themselves to the bone. I think that's a little bit of a flawed approach because yeah, like while they're grinding it out, like. I think along with that, a lot of times comes a little bit of stubbornness or maybe attached to their own idea or like unwillingness to pivot or like really kind of internalizing the wisdom that they've accumulated along the way. Um, and so like, I, I think that ends up being fool's gold a lot more than others. So where do I, where have I gotten the most confidence I have from like this process? It's honestly from talking to other people in the space, other founders, other people who want to do business with me saying you stumbled onto a core concept that no one else is executing on where maybe your vision of it or your interpretation of it, or, you know, your current product as exists may need a little bit of work and maybe you're kind of like need to nibble around the edges, but the concept that you're selling is someone else that no one else has thought of. 
And that's the reason I got into this into the first place. So I look at this as I have done the hard part right. And that hypothesis has been validated over and over and over again. There's another founder that kind of like is a little bit ahead of me and has had multiple successful exits. And kind of the big piece of advice he gave me is it's not about like making a big bet and failing. It's just making sure that all the bets don't bankrupt you along the way. And so I'm okay with failure. There's been so many points of failure with Betscope along the way that I just accept it as the cost of doing business. But the way that I'm able to counteract that failure and retain that confidence is just the sheer number of people that told me over and over again, like Jesse, yourself included, you got something here. Don't stop. I know you want to keep quitting. I know this is tough, but truly you're onto something that no one else has done. And just hearing that independently from so many other people means that I know that this is going to be worth something and figuring out how to monetize it, figure out how to get that concept into the universe. I know I have something unique to say that validates that original feeling of like, man, I think I'm the only one that can do this. One of the things you said is actually uh, one of the core concepts in Anti-Fragile, which is you take lots of small failures, but you're out looking for something where you win to such a high degree that all the small failures combined don't matter anymore, right? And so like if you take nine minus ones, so your cumulatively at minus nine, but then you win the 10th one and get a plus a hundred, it doesn't matter how many minus ones you got, right? Those are just part of the process as long as they don't ruin you, like you said, which I think is another Warren Buffett quote. It's like avoid ruin at all costs. So I'll get back into the actual question. I've got a fairly simple like kind of thought process I use for, I guess, self-confidence and not having imposter syndrome. Like I've done a, a fairly good job of keeping that at bay and not really letting it creep up. And that's by looking back at those accomplishments, like uh, with the Guitar Hero stuff, I was number one on four different games. And so as I think about that today, looking back and then comparing it to building a business, I look at it and I'm like, okay, I spent God only knows how many thousands of hours doing this, kind of like 5,000 hours. Okay, well, I spent 5,000 hours doing something I wanted to do, and I ended up the best in the world at it. Like, that's a pretty damn good, like, resume to look back on. And so now let's apply that to building a matched betting business. Okay, maybe I'm 2,000 hours in. Like, all right, so maybe close to halfway there. Maybe two years from now, it'll be the best matched betting business in the world. Like, all right, yeah, that's just encouraging. And even if it, it doesn't even have to be, right? The bar is not that high. If it's, you know, like you said, a profitable business, like that's where the bar actually is, right? For success versus failure. It's not being the literal best business in the space. And so like those two things combined kind of are comforting to me. It's like, I did this in the past for something I wanted to do. I want to do this. So that part is, you know, equivalent. And then you just put enough time into it. You make your mistakes. You learn from your mistakes. Don't repeat the mistakes. Like eventually you get there, right? And I think for a lot of people, they're not, accustomed to thinking in terms of like thousands of hours and maybe that's another like meta quality of good entrepreneurs it's like you can just sit down and do the same thing over and over and over again and like keep yourself entertained by doing that but uh that's that's kind of how i think about it like emotionally it's hard but consciously it's like okay no like i should be able to do this just keep going right and then like if you can kind of calm yourself down emotionally with stoicism i guess is what i'm describing then that's helpful yeah, to put it in, maybe to do a ham fist analogy, if you believe you're profitable taking bets in a market where the payout is 125 to one, but your expected value is, you know, 8%, you're going to lose the vast majority of the time. And it is tough going to work and just like losing the majority of the time waiting for that step change that you believe will come. So like 
it is what we signed up for, but it is exactly that. I cannot undersell the importance of finding there's no wrong way to keep yourself going as long as it, you know, doesn't hurt anyone or is ultimately harmless. But like there is no wrong answer for, uh, you know, keeping that going during the day to day because it really is step changes at the stage that we're in. Awesome, guys. I mean, look, from listening to you guys chat over the last 25-ish minutes or however long it's been so far, like it's very clear to me you guys have connected on on a number of axes, least to which, again, like your businesses have some potential synergies potentially. But that aside, like at a human level, at a personal level, I can tell both of you have gotten a lot of value out of the relationship you have with each other as peers. So curious, guys, for maybe our last question for today, you know, as other entrepreneurs are maybe listening to this and are thinking about potential partners of their own. What can you sort of suggest as to, you know, how they can go about finding peers to sort of relate to on this level? And I guess, you know, maybe relating it back to your guys' experience, what was it you both saw, I guess, that led you to choose to work together specifically? And again, you know, maybe this is something that can help other people kind of inform their own partnership strategies or or find people that they can resonate with uh, as they embark on their own journeys. Well, I guess in terms of tactics, I don't know. My lesson from this one is luck box your way into an advisor sitting in an audience at a pitch competition who just happens to connect you to another founder you think might get along. I don't know, man. So much of like how you run into people is luck. That being said, I have done my fair share of cold calling and just like not being afraid to get yourself out there talking to other businesses. So when in doubt, just pick up the phone. I think what you'll find in a lot of places, especially for these younger companies, is everyone always has to take that call because you never know where it leads. We're talking about that, you know, step change earlier. And so don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Like there's someone just as hungry and waiting for the big break as like you probably are on the other end, but someone's got to make the first call when like, you know, you don't know anyone else. Now, like that being said, like not everyone connects the same, like this Drew and I could have easily been like, a, oh, huh, that's interesting. I ah, will stay in touch type of thing. But I think the reason, you know, that we've like, we've really resonated, connected. I think it's, it's because we know we're both in it for the right reasons. I think like every one of our calls, we both kind of have that thousand yard stare on our eyes that says this is simultaneously the best and the worst where we don't need to say a thing. And we both know that we're feeling basically the same wavelength or the same mix of emotions. And we've chosen to get into this. So some of it is like remarkably similar circumstances in our life, but some of it, but I think the most of it is like, we're, we're both at the end of the day, obsessive weirdos about our particular thing. And we can't turn it off if we tried. And I don't think you can really undersell the importance of just being in the company of those people, you feel less a little bit weird and obsessive about your own thing, how you're not, you're the only one out there. And not only that, but it really frees you up to be a lot more honest about your day-to-day. You know, I I have my apparently never-ending gripes of the way that entrepreneurship has run in the run in the last decade in the 0% interest rate environment. I think one of the things that just got accepted as the cost of doing business is everybody lies about what they can and cannot do. Uh, fake it till you make it. That's the cutesy way that like everyone is just like a pathological liar, a borderline sociopath around like just saying what you can and cannot do. And frankly, that type of business mentality is what put me off of entrepreneurship forever because I just don't have that in me. I don't have it in me to say like whatever I need to close this deal, I'll say whatever it takes just to you know get the bottom line signed. It's always been intellectually dishonest for me. And so when Drew and I are comparing notes by contrast saying like, oh, okay, we work together. 
I can tell Drew warts and all what we can and cannot do. Here's what we have. It needs a little bit more work. Can you plan on it being resolved by this date? And I know I have the freedom to have those conversations because he knows I'm an obsessive weirdo. I know he, he he's an obsessive weirdo. And there's been so many times where he says like, look, like I know it's not perfect now, but I know you'll get there because I know you're going to grind it out just as much as I will because game recognized game. And so that ability to operate in just kind of like an intellectually honest way where you don't have to have the mental tax of just bullshitting everyone the whole time really lets you be comfortable in your own skin. And that is a gift worth this weight in gold and entrepreneurship when you always have to put on airs to everyone. The mic drop yeah. I've heard one calling. <laughs> yeah, actually, one of the things I was going to say was exactly along those lines, which is like, if you're a really obsessive weirdo and you see somebody with the same like maniacal drive for like premium quality stuff, like you notice, like that's not something you can kind of fake from a sincerity standpoint. Like, you know, when someone has that drive for quality, it's like, that's kind of, I think the most per interpersonal thing that's resonated with me specific to this case. Although there are a few general things I want to call out. So, uh, like I mentioned before on the podcast, I just like reading classical business books and a lot of the, the virtues that they recommend hard virtues for a reason in the business world. So like, here's a quote from good to great by Jim Collins. Collins says, select for dimensions like character, work ethic, basic intelligence, dedication to fulfilling commitments and values and finding the right people. And I know, you know, both, both of you, Colin and Jesse are five for five on those. I've seen it with my own eyes and, you know, to summarize it in a less verbose way, it's like, if you say you're going to do something, you have to actually do that thing. Otherwise, people are going to realize that you didn't do what you said you were and they're going to stop working with you. And that's not sustainable, right? And so, you know, I would summarize that as just like both, you know, Colin and Jesse both have a ton of integrity. Like I would, if you ever need a recommendation for me, I'm here. Like I will say that in front of anybody. Awesome. Well, look, guys, on that note, I mean, I, it's obvious to me we could probably chat for another 40 minutes about all of this. This is great stuff, but I think uh, we'll, we'll probably pin it there. Um, really want to thank you both for taking the time to not only just show up to this, but, you know, really sort of like open the kimono, so to speak, and, and have a little bit of vulnerability and really open up again, hopefully to the benefit of some folks listening who are on their own journey and, and facing their own struggles and embracing the grind in their own way. I think this has been really insightful. So Colin, before we let you go, can you give a quick plug to Betscope where people can check out the product uh, and also how they can get in touch with you if anybody listening wants to reach out and chat about anything that they might have heard you touch upon today? Yeah, absolutely. You can always take a look at our site at betscope.io. Take a look at the product for yourself. We have a, si a newsletter sign up where you can stay in touch with uh, a lot of stuff I'll write about. You can al also get that at betscope.substack.com. And then always feel free to drop me a line. You can find me at colin at betscope.io. Just drop me a note. Right on. Well, thanks again for joining us today, Colin. Drew, as always, thank you for taking the time. Uh, and to everybody listening, thanks again for checking out this episode. We'll be back next week with episode five of Betting On It. So we'll see you again then. Yeah.